Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. The Glastonbury Festival is one of the largest outdoor music and performing arts festivals in the world, annually drawing hundreds of thousands of people for the five-day festival. Back in 2019, something really extraordinary happened at the Glastonbury Festival. The British rapper Stormzy took the stage and sang his hit song, Blinded by Your Grace a song that echoes both John Newton's classic hymn, Amazing Grace, and the Apostle Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, an encounter that left Paul temporarily blinded by the grace of God. Stormzy's refrain repeated throughout the song says, Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fixed me. I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. What was extraordinary about the performance that day on that stage at the Glastonbury Festival was not that Stormzy sang his song, Blinded by Grace. It was a very popular song at that time, as I understand it. What was shocking, what was surprising, is not that people uh, clapped for that song, smiled during that song. What may have, have been surprising, what was rather extraordinary, is that that vast crowd of hundreds of thousands of people about the grace of God sang every single word. When he and his band began launching into that song, he said, we're going to go to church, and they clapped. In largely secular uh, England, in the UK, where an even smaller percentage of people go to church, are involved in a church, identify as Christian, hundreds of thousands of people sang that song, Blinded by Grace. Now, it could be that they sang along just because they already knew all of the words to all of his other songs. But could it also be that even among those who aren't interested in the church or in Christianity, still hunger and thirst and yearn for an experience of God that can really only be expressed or is best captured by that one word, grace. I mean, that's not the word it would seem that comes most readily to mind for people when they think about Christians, Christianity, or the church these days. I mean, if we're honest, uh, and people have done research on this, most often the words that come to mind when people hear the word Christian or evangelical or church is judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous. These are not positive words. The word that I think does come to mind when we think of Jesus is the word grace. And our faith is, at its heart, whether or not that's in our personal experience, our religion, our faith is a religion of grace. It's there in the passage that Carol just read, the passage that's the heart of this series on the the goodness of God. God appeared to Moses. God revealed himself and his character to Moses, but not just to Moses, to the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, to God's people sitting in this sanctuary joining us online today. 
God revealed himself to Moses, to them, to us, to all as merciful and gracious. He revealed himself as a God of grace. And that is a word that we can associate with the Old Testament God, not just the New Testament God. We sometimes, those of us who've grown up in the church, think of the two as quite distinct and different deities, and we identify grace with Jesus, with good reason, of course, because the Gospel of John tells us, for example, in the first chapter, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen His glory, glory like that of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, says that God, out of, uh, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead, forgave our trespasses. By grace you are saved, says Paul. By grace you've been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ours is a religion of grace, a faith of grace, a salvation by grace. But do we still know how to sing of this grace? Is that the song we are singing? I mean, why is it that 200,000 people can enthusiastically sing a song about God's blinding, life-changing grace and yet largely have no interest in the church of Jesus or the movement of Jesus? Could it be that we have forgotten how to sing this song, the song of God's amazing grace? Could it be that we're not quite sure we believe it ourselves? Is it really a part of our vision of God, our understanding of God, our knowledge of God? Or maybe could it be that our understanding of grace is just a little bit smaller than God has revealed. And if we can get a glimpse of the fullness of God's grace, it will lead us into the fullness of our relationship with God and the fullness of our mission to the world all around. Now, to help us get a kind of fuller vision, fuller grasp of the grace of God, I have found it helpful to turn to one of the greatest movies ever made, The Godfather which is not a movie that you would think of immediately when you think of grace. But the opening scene actually is a great pointer toward the grace of God. As you may know, uh, the movie begins with a wedding, and apparently, according to tradition, um, people can ask the father of the bride, make any request to the father of the bride, and he will grant it on his daughter's wedding day. And so uh, this wedding is the daughter of Don Corleone, the godfather. And so he, while the family is all outside celebrating, he's in his office receiving visitors, who, all of whom are coming to make requests of him. 
His nephew comes. He wants to be in a movie. He's a famous singer, but he wants to be a famous actor. And there's a movie that is perfect for him. This role would make him a star, but the director won't give him the part. Will the Godfather please do what he does and give get him that role in that film? Another man, a, 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 um, a funeral director, comes to see him asking for justice for his daughter. She's been assaulted. The courts have been no help. The legal system is no help. And so he's turning to Don Corleone for help. Now, here's the thing. All of those people and others who come and go to see the Godfather, they're making requests. They're asking for favors. They're actually asking for grace. All of them knowing that when you ask the Godfather for a gift, you don't just get a gift, you get a relationship. And he makes it explicit. I'll do this for you, but one day, someday, maybe no day, I will come and ask for a favor from you. Now, the reason I'm telling you that this is actually a great window onto grace for us is this isn't just how the mafia works. (laughs) This is how the Roman world worked. This is how the Roman world worked. Roman aristocrats began their day receiving visitors who were called clients, and they would dispense gifts. And in exchange for those gifts, their clients, all of whom were less powerful and less wealthy than them, understood that they owed their loyalty to their patron. And when called upon, they would supply men for the military, food for the army, a vote when it was election time. In other words, gifts created relationships. They weren't just transactions. They created relationships. This is why Paul, in his letter to the churches of Rome, says, owe no one anything. He's not just like, you know, a personal financial advisor arguing against debt. He's saying, don't be a client of anyone. Don't have those kind of obligations toward anyone. Your loyalty belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Don't owe anyone anything because in that world, gifts created relationships. They were created by relationships. They sustained relationships. They strengthened relationships and they, um, they deepened relationships. Grace in that world, and grace really just means gift. Grace was relational, not transactional. And we see that in the Scriptures. We see that in the book of Exodus, in the Gospel according to John, and in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. God's grace in all three of those passages creates relationships. I mean, the setting for the revelation of God's character to his people through Moses on Mount Sinai is a broken relationship. God's people on their honeymoon, as we said a couple weeks ago, have committed adultery against God. 
They have said yes to God's invitation to be his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. They will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Through them, God will reveal himself to all people. They will be his special people. And they have said yes. There's been a covenant ceremony. There's been a wedding feast. And then while Moses is on Mount Sinai, kind of talking with God about their life together, about God's life with his people and his people's life with him, they make a golden calf and bow down to it and say, these are the gods who delivered us from our bondage in Egypt. They commit adultery on their honeymoon. But God reveals himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the revelation of his character to us through Moses has everything to do with renewing this broken relationship, renewing this broken covenant. That's why at the beginning of the passage, as Carol read it, Moses is told to bring two tablets of stone with him up onto the mountain. God is going to write out the Ten Commandments, the covenant, once again. This is how our relationship, a relationship based on God's grace, will be shaped, will be formed. In the ancient world and in our life together with God, right here and right now, God's grace, God's gifts create relationships. They nurture and strengthen and deepen relationships. This isn't just a transaction. On Mount Sinai, God was renewing restoring, healing, a shattered relationship. At the beginning, we get Moses bringing two tablets of stone with him up onto the mountain. And at the end, we get Moses pleading with God, take us as your people and God promising, I will. Grace, gifts, create relationships. I mean, that's the whole point of the gospel in the, in the beginning of the gospel of John when John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. We're going to come to that in a few weeks, right? We have seen his glory, the glory that Moses could not see. We have seen in the face of Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. What does that grace do? Some of you may know the name Billy Sunday. Uh, Billy Graham, you probably all know that name, one of the most famous preachers and evangelists in recent Christian history. He was converted at a revival um, during which Billy Sunday was the featured speaker. He was the Billy Graham of his day. And a lot of people did come into uh, a life-changing encounter with God and His grace through Billy Sunday, but he tended to approach grace in a fairly transactional way. He said, if you come forward, if you pray this prayer, and then walk out of this tent and get run over by a truck, boom, you'll go straight to heaven. Which, of course, is true. But there's so much more to grace than that. We have tended, not always, but we have tended to turn salvation into getting us into heaven when we die. 
when in reality, grace and salvation are all about getting heaven into us and on the earth. Grace doesn't just save our souls for heaven. It saves us for God on the earth. It doesn't just secure some blessings for us one day, sometime in the future. It blesses us with a relationship with God right here and right now. Gifts create relationships. God's grace creates a relationship. That's why in John 1, in addition to saying we've seen his glory like a son full of grace and truth from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, it also says that uh, he was with us. We didn't know him, we didn't receive him, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Sons and daughters of God. Not children by the flesh, not of natural birth, not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but by the will of God. That's the whole point, to bring us back home, back into a relationship with God. Could it be that this is what the hearts of hundreds of thousands of fans at the Glastonbury Festival were singing about? Could it be that this deep human yearning for relationship with God, connection to God, life with God, could it be that yearning was behind their singing? Whether or not they ever go to church, whether or not they identify as Christian, I believe that they sung enthusiastically, joyfully, of a grace that blinded John Newton and the Apostle Paul and Stormzy because they wanted to experience that grace for themselves. We are saved by grace, and that does include forgiveness by grace, but it also includes a relationship by grace. God's grace creates relationships. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, as you may know, began his adult life as a slave trader. 1700s, he was the captain of a slave ship. He bought and sold slaves. Thousands of men, women, and children he bought, he sold, he transported on his ship. And then in 1746, his ship was overwhelmed by a violent storm at sea. He feared for his life, the whole crew did, and in the midst of that storm, he cried out to God for mercy. He asked God for his grace. And in the midst of that storm, he, came, he, he felt an awareness of the presence of God. He felt an awareness of the grace and mercy and love of God. And the storm subsided. And where there had not been any relationship with God, now there was the beginning. The first signs of life between John Newton and God. 
He had come to faith in Christ. Now, what's interesting is he kept trading slaves. It was actually God's grace continuing to work in his heart, his mind, his life, that over time persuaded him, you can't follow Jesus and also own people. You can't follow Jesus and also trade slaves. You have to leave this behind. By grace, he was saved in the midst of the storm, and by grace, he was saved as he grew in Christ. He grew in his understanding and knowledge of God. He grew deeper in love as he grew closer to God, and that deep grace, that transforming grace, changed his life. And then in 1772, he wrote the hymn that so many of us know and have grown up singing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. He saw and we see God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ. He saw and we see God's grace in the cruciform and the crucified hands, feet, and body of Jesus. He saw and we see God's grace in the gift of his Son for us, and for all. A grace that forgives sin, but also delivers from sin. A grace that assures us, in the fa- that, that reassures us of life in the presence of death, but also a grace that brings heaven to earth, that gets heaven into us and through us on the earth, a grace that creates a relationship, sustains a relationship, strengthens a relationship, deepens a relationship. We are not just forgiven by grace. We walk by grace. We sing by grace. We pray by grace. We serve by grace. We can always and really only do anything and everything by God's grace. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thanks for the grace we see in Jesus. We give thanks for the grace, the free favor we receive through Jesus. We give thanks for the grace already at work in our hearts and our lives, in and through our church and this community and the world all around. We pray that your spirit would keep us wide open to your grace, wide open to your favor, wide open to your transforming power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.